So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'll remind you that Paul has taken now into his third chapter to really hammer in on the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. The way we think about things really dictates the way we make decisions, and the way we make decisions really dictates the kind of life we live. And there are two sources of wisdom, God and the world. The world is making decisions based on thought processing that does not begin with God. And God is giving us his wisdom that has nothing to do with what the world says is cool or relevant or necessary. Now, he's spending a whole lot of time talking about wisdom because word had come to him that the church was falling apart. They were divisive. They were cliquish and factioned, and there were arguments and contentions. I mean, it had gone just past just, I like this teacher or I like that teacher. It had gotten down to their actually arguing and fighting contention about this thing. And that wasn't the problem. I mean, it was the problem, but you know that when there's a problem, there's usually an underlying problem. The underlying problem, why they were so contentious, is because they were so immature. He told us that in chapter 3, the beginning. He said, you guys are like babies. You're like adult babies. You're adults, but you're behaving like children. You're behaving like infants. You're being selfish. You're breaking relationships with each other. And it's immaturity. Now, immaturity happened because they had, as a church, when it came to making decisions about their lives and how to practice, I mean, Jesus was good for salvation. But when it comes to what to do about marriage, what to do about conflict resolution, well, we need what the world has to say. So they had supplemented God's Word and the simplicity of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. They had supplemented that, thinking, well, that's not enough. The world has something to offer us in terms of how to live. And instead of making them better as a church, instead of bringing them closer to the glory of God in their fellowship, what did it do? It actually was destroying them. We are in the same place today. We have come nowhere in terms of these types of issues. If you do a Google search on how to grow your church, you will find no end of resources, books, seminars, experts. And really, what we're concerned with is how do we get more people into the church? How do we increase the attendance? Because you see, we've been in somewhat of a 60-year decline in terms of church attendance. This is not new information for you. You've seen it. You understand, I think, that less people are going to church. We are in what's called a a post-Christian culture, a humanist culture, which means that, you know, all we really can understand is what we can measure and quantify, see with our senses. And if God doesn't fall into that category, then, well, we don't believe that he exists. And so now we look to the world for what's important. How do I live? What's a good life look like? All those big questions. What's my purpose? What's my meaning? What's important? And the world gives us all the cues and the clues. The world has its ways. You know, there's a reason when you watch YouTube that, that videos just string one after the other. There's a whole institute that tries to understand how you think psychologically and then play on that to get money from you or to get more views from you. They're studying you and how you think so that you can be manipulated. And they're good at it. They're expert at it. That's why you were up till 2 a.m. last night watching YouTube videos. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. But we get scared because it seems like people are leaving the church. And then when we get scared, we think, well, God needs some help. 
to do what he promised. So we got to, like Abraham and Sarah, when God promises them a child, and Sarah is barren, she's infertile, she can't have children. God's plan was to do this miraculously. But Abraham said, well, we need to figure out our human way to solve the problem to help God out. And they solicited the use of his slave girl, Hagar. They had a baby. His name was Ishmael, and it was a train wreck. And then you could try to supplement uh, the promises of God with wisdom like Rebecca. Jacob and Esau, Rebecca had twins. Isaac, Rebecca, you remember them in the book of Genesis? She had twins growing in her womb, and they were battling it out. There was a fight going on there. And God tells her that the older is going to serve the younger. Now, that's backwards. Usually the younger serves the older. But she said, oh, no, no. God told her the older will serve the younger. So then Rebecca sets out to try to help God do that by dressing her younger son Jacob up in certain kind of goat hair to resemble his older brother. And she just tries all these things to make sure, deception and lies, to make sure God can do it. And that's a train wreck. And so what God is trying to tell us, and what I'm trying to tell you, and what Paul's trying to say here, is that anytime we as a church, we, the church, capital C, or you as an individual, try to supplement the Word of God with the wisdom of the world, it will be a train wreck. And it will destroy you and the church. Now you see why I take this so seriously this morning. Because this is the world we live in. Again, This is what I found written about the Corinthian church. I like the way this man just summarized it all. When the Apostle Paul wrote his first epistle to the Corinthians, he dealt with every imaginable kind of human problem. And some were almost unimaginable. He talked about quarrels, party splits, court cases, property disputes, and various kinds of sexual difficulty, from incest to prostitution. He talked about premarital relations and marital relations and postmarital relations. He wrote about widowhood, divorce, vegetarianism, getting drunk at the communion table, speaking in tongues, death and funerals, taking up offerings and conducting an every member canvas in the church. Those were the things Paul is writing to them about. Those are the questions, the issues that they had, the issues that existed because of the presence of worldly wisdom and an enamored nature with worldly wisdom. Now, this is a book I've referred to often, The American Paradox by David G. Myers, Spiritual Hunger in an Age of Plenty. This is what he says about the wisdom of the age we live in now. So what he's basically saying is that we have it better than we've ever had it before in America. We are wealthier. We have more recreation time. We have more resources. We are wealthier and more abundant than ever in human history. But yet, in the midst of that, we're also more miserable and more medicated than ever in the course of human history. That's why he calls it the American Paradox. Why are we so miserable when we have so much? Remember, the subtitle is Spiritual Hunger in an Age of Plenty. This is what he says. And this is what the Corinthians were dealing with. How were they dealing with the issues, the questions that they had? They were dealing with them with worldly wisdom. What was that worldly wisdom? Well, let me summarize it for you here. He says, the explanation for this paradox lies in the radical individualism familiar to us in contemporary America's pop psychology and libertarian values. Do your own thing. Seek your own bliss. Challenge authority. If it feels good, do it. Shun conformity. Don't force your values on others. Assert your personal rights to own guns, sell pornography, do business free of regulations. Protect your privacy. Cut taxes and raise executive pay. To love others, first love yourself. Listen to your own heart. 
prefer solo spirituality to communal religion. Be self-sufficient. Expect others likewise to believe in themselves and to make it on their own. Such sentiments define the heart of economic and social individualism, which finds its peak expression in modern America. One more thing I'll read. He says, yet for today's radical individualism, we pay a price, a social recession that imperils children, corrodes civility, and diminishes happiness. We've tried it in the church. How many of you have been around long enough to know of uh, Bill Hybels and the Willow Creek church growth seeker-friendly model? Have you heard of that before? For 30 years, churches have looked to the seeker-friendly model developed by Bill Hybels and Willow Creek Church. They never talked about sin. They would not come down on issues that were divisive in the culture. Well, this article, and this is what happened years later, after everybody had been following their model, the article's called Willow Creek Repents. They went through a mass repentance as church leaders. This is what he says. Few would disagree that Willow Creek Community Church has been one of the most influential churches in America over the last 30 years. Willow, through its association, has promoted a vision of church that is big, programmatic, and comprehensive. The vision has been heavily influenced by the methods of secular business. Worldly wisdom making its way into the church. You know, the Bible tells us that we are a family, not a business. But yet churches following suit to Willow Creek because of their great numeric success... I said, well, the business world knows how to grow. We should take our cues from them. The pastor becomes the CEO. The sheep, the people aren't brothers and sisters. They're clients with needs. We have to retain our clientele through catchy means. This vision has been heavily influenced by the methods of secular business. James Twitchell in his new book, Shopping for God, reports that outside Bill Hybel's office hangs a poster that says, what is our business? Who is our customer? What does the customer consider value? Directly or indirectly, this philosophy of ministry, church should be a big box of programs for people at every level of spiritual maturity to consume and engage has impacted every evangelical church in the country. And I'll skip a lot of the article, but basically here's Heibel's confession. He says, we made a mistake. What we should have done when people cross the line of faith and become Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders. In other words, you have to read the Bible for yourself. That, listen, what they said is, we realized, we thought programs and participation would be the key. They thought they could bring the increase by getting people to participate in programs. But yet, unless things are spiritually driven, and unless people are seeking God for themselves, we can't bring the growth. That's what they learned. We should have gotten people, taught people how to read their Bible between service from Sunday to Sunday how to do the spiritual practices more aggressively on their own. In other words, spiritual growth doesn't happen best by becoming dependent on elaborate church programs, but through the age-old spiritual practice of prayer, Bible reading, and relationships. And ironically, these basic disciplines do not require multi-million dollar facilities and hundreds of staff to manage. It's still so simple. You know, I remember as a young church planting pastor, I think maybe there were 150 people coming to Calvary Chapel at the time and We didn't know nothing about nothing. I didn't know how to plant a church. I just wanted to teach the Word of God and love people. And you know, it's still the same thing. we got a building now and we have some more things, but the heart is still the same. Teach people God's Word and leave the results in His hands. But I remember meeting with a church planting expert who began to tell me that, oh, if you really want to bring people into the church, you need a good band. You need good music. That'll really bring people in. Oh, no. If you want to bring people into the church, you need this kind of show. It's got to be a concert. You got to give people what they're looking for. You got to feed their flesh. 
and they'll come. But they'll come, and you know what will happen? They'll stay fleshy, and they'll stay immature, and that's the wisdom of the world, and that's the problem in Corinth. I'm going to read you one more quote, and this is from Charles Spurgeon. He said, Christianity has been infinitely hindered by the musical, the aesthetic, and the ceremonial devices of men, but it has never been advantaged by them. No, not a jot. The sensuous delights of sound and sight have always been enlisted on the side of error, but Christ has employed nobler and more spiritual agencies. Things which fascinate the senses are left to be the chosen instruments of Antichrist. But the gospel, disdaining Saul's armor, goes forth in the natural simplicity of its own might, like David with sling and stone. Our holy religion owes nothing whatever to any carnal means. So far as they are concerned, it is a root out of dry ground. It goes nowhere. All of that to give you a rather lengthy introduction to this next section in 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul has been talking about growing the church. That He said, I can only plant and Apollo can water, but God brings the increase. And he's bringing this on the heels of just teaching them Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was his message. Not bottled up in catchy means and fleshy-driven attractions. So we pick up in verse 9. He said, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. So this is probably one of the, if not the sternest warning in the Bible to church leadership. Church leadership can build the church or church leadership can cause the church to be torn down. Well, let's talk about this from the standpoint of a building. Because I like Paul because he likes to give illustrations. And I like illustrations because I'm a concrete thinker. I don't do good with abstractions. So you've got to make it plain to me. So Paul says, all right, let me explain. I'm going to make this plain to you. Here he said, we're God's fellow workers and we're working together with God. He first talked about them as a field, but then he says, you know what? You're like a building. You're like a building. Now, we all can relate to a building, right? We're sitting in one. You're like a building. He said, and according to the grace which is given to me, as a, the word wise master builder, interesting, sophos is the word that Paul's been using, wisdom, that's been discussed here. He's a wise architect, master builder. That's the Greek word is where we get our word architect. And a wise builder, what does a wise builder pay attention to first and foremost? Somebody say foundation. The foundation. Doesn't matter how big or how beautiful or how fancy your house is or your building is, if the foundation is faulty. If the foundation is faulty, the building will eventually crumble. And so many churches, the pastors, the leadership have left the church without a foundation. If you're here for anything but Jesus, then you may not last here. And I hope, look, I have to look in the mirror and say, well, God, look, what do you see when you look at Calvary Chapel, Fluvanna? I mean, I know there's churches where you can get a great concert and you can, there's a lot of appeal there. And so we have to find that, Lord, what do you want us to do? How do we not draw attention away from Jesus? Because that's what Paul said. He said, I came like a wise master builder. I spent 18 months with you guys, giving you the foundation. It's the same thing he said when he said, I brought you milk, the ABCs. The foundation of mathematics, simple addition and subtraction. If you don't know that one plus one equals two, then you're never going to get astrophysics. So if your math teacher doesn't teach you that first, you'll botch up everything that comes after it. So Paul says, I came 
like a wise master builder, like an architect. And I laid this solid foundation. So what Paul's saying is, like, don't blame me for the problems in the church. I laid a foundation. The foundation's important. I mean, I remember when this building was being built, just all the care and attention to a, a solid foundation, giving them the basics of Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul was there 18 months. He moves on, Acts chapter 18. Then this guy named Apollos comes in. Apollos is a brilliant speaker, mighty in the scriptures, the Bible says. He took what Paul started, and he began to build on that. So once the foundation is done, then the other crews come in. You got the electrician, the plumber. You got the framing guys. They all come in. And the ultimate goal is that the building is being expanded, built up. And he says to them, the leadership there, he says to you and I, take heed how you build on it. You know, Jesus told the parable of the wise and foolish builder. If you remember that in Matthew, the Beatitudes, so there's two people, there's two builders. They're both building buildings. They're both building houses. One, the foolish one, just builds it on the sand, builds it on the shifting sand of worldly wisdom, of worldly trends. But the other person, they dig deep. They got to get down past the frost layer. They got to get down to solid rock and build on something that's unmoving, that's unchangeable. You've come to know we haven't had to revise the Word of God in thousands of years. It still stands. So if you want to build, and you are building, you have got to build on the Word of God. The rock, the wise builder, whether it's church or life, digs down deep into the Word of God and builds his life on a foundation of eternal truth, not passing trends. But he says to the leadership, he says, now take heed how you build on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You've got to pay attention. We have to pay attention to how we build. And this is speaking to Bible study leaders, home group leaders. This is speaking to you if you have ever given counsel or advice to another person in the body of Christ. I've heard some of the lamest advice out of Christian mouths. Oh, honey, you just got to do what makes you happy. You know, whatever. And I was like, where is that coming from? Well, hey, look, I do a lot of counseling. And I've sat with people and everything in me wants to say, hey, get out of that relationship. Do this thing, you know, just cut and run. But I got to say, the word of God says, love your enemy. The word of God says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I can't say anything else than that. The word of God says, wives, honor your husbands. Give them the respect due. The word of God says, children, obey your parents. But, 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 the word of God says, children, obey your parents. This is right. Comes with a blessing. The word of God says, employers, remember, you got a master in heaven. Don't treat your employees ungraciously or wrongly. I'd love to say something else. Sometimes I feel the pain. I feel the, the confusion. And I go, well, that's what it says. Now let's pray that God would get, like, I understand that you're weak and you're not there yet. I'm okay with that. There's grace along with truth. But we can't be soft on truth. We can't lower the bar. They were in danger of going, well, Jesus is here, but we're going to lay another foundation next to Jesus. We'll start building on something else. There is no other foundation. There's no other foundation you can build on. The only foundational, solid, eternal thing in the entirety of the world and history is God himself. 
and he's the very one that people have pushed out. So you can't build another foundation. You can't start over with something else, although people try. He says, we have one building. We have one foundation, and therefore, he says, take heed how you build on it, because you can't start over. If you destroy it, you've got to live with what you destroyed. How many lives do you have? You've got one. So take heed how you build. How many churches are there in the world? Say one. There's one. There's one church. And he's in charge of it. So when we build, we go, you know what? If we mess it all up, we can't just scrap it and start over. You know, I know guys that have inherited churches, like they've come and pastored. The church has been around since the 1700s or whatever. And now they've called in this new pastor to come and bring change and all that to grow the church. And he has to deal with all the problems that the last pastor left. I think that when you come here, I think you would see the primary focus when you come to Calvary Chapel. Just look at sheer time. Primary focus, Word of God. It's what we spend the most time doing when we come together. We could do more praying together. We could do that. Maybe we should. The Word of God. So take heed how you build, because how you build is really important. He says, now, if anyone builds, if you're anyone and you're building, you're feeding into, you're giving counsel to someone else, You can't just give them what you want. He said, now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort or quality it is. So he brings two different types of materials. One type of material, gold, silver, precious stone. These things are actually refined by fire, not destroyed by it. These things are enduring. These are the materials of the building of the temple. But then there's the wood, hay, and straw. What do you know about wood, hay, and straw? They're combustible. They don't last. We had a barn fire, I don't know, 12 years ago. We had a cedar barn that we had built. We lived in a very small house, and we had some animals and some livestock, and we needed some storage space. So we built this barn, the top floor of the barn, just filled with all the stuff that now you have in your storage units. We just built our storage unit at home, filled it with stuff, that we had because we'd have a very small house with no space. So we built the barn and we had hay storage there and we had animals there. And Thanksgiving morning, I get up, we're getting ready to go to my parents for Thanksgiving day and Thanksgiving dinner. And Helga says, our barn is on fire. And I ran out of the bedroom and threw on some clothes and ran outside. That cedar, man, it goes up fast. It was hot. I couldn't even get close to it. We lost animals in the fire. It was sad. I built that barn with my own hands, but I built it out of cedar, and it was filled with hay and a little spark. The fire company said, all we can figure is that a little spark from the electric outlet in there caught the hay on fire, and the day revealed it that my work, all the work was gone in an instant. So Paul is saying, what is the silver, the gold, the precious stones? That is the enduring truth of the Word of God. Those things endure time. They endure judgment, the fire of judgment. That's what you build with. Wood, hay, straw, that's combustible. That's temporary. That's, well, for some it's religious ritual and rule. See, if we want people to do what we want them to do and they're not doing it on their own, well, now we have to bring rules into it. Paul says to the Corinthians, all things are lawful for me. That's in response to some people that say, well, you got to follow the law. you got to follow these rules. That's a worldly way to use fear to get people to do what God wants. We're meant to be compelled by love, not fear. 
The love of Christ compels us, not the fear of the church. So that's one combustible thing. We're under a new covenant. The other combustible thing is the liberal pleasure of entertainment and amusement and let's have a big show and then people come for the show and not for the Lord. They come because the pastor's a celebrity and so we appeal to people's carnal nature to get them in and think that somehow they're going to grow because of that. And we build with these combustible materials that won't stand the test of time. But here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want to notice. He doesn't say, hey, pay attention to how much you built, the amount of building, how big your house is. Pastors, we want to ask people, well, how big is your church? Well, how big is your church? Like somehow size is an indicator of spirituality. Look, the closer we get to the day, the closer we get to the Lord's return, the church is going to get smaller. There's going to be a great falling away. And if you're only into going to places where a lot of people seem to be, if you follow the crowd, you're going to miss the church. If you want to go in by the big door where lots of people are going in, you're going to miss it. So these are the ways that we can try to entertain, to bring people in. There's going to be a great falling away. The church is actually going to shrink. The days of the mega church are numbered. But take heed the quality, not the quantity of people that come to the church, not the quantity of seats we have in the sanctuary, not the size of the building, but the quality. Did you see that? He says the fire will test each one's work of what quality it is. They got 40,000 people to a Rolling Stones concert at JPJ. Does that mean that that's spiritual? Come on, church, we got to get this. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, in other words, a builder who's had a long-term view, even though the growth is slower, it's a lot harder to, to lay block, block by block, than it is to just throw up a stick building or build a, a straw bale structure. It takes more work. It takes more time. But it'll last. You see, we have to have a long-term view, not a short-term view of our own spiritual growth. Calvary Chapel, Fluvanna, we've grown very slowly over time. That one will receive a reward, literally a salary or a wage. And if anyone's work is burned, in other words, when the judgment comes, and we're not talking about the white throne judgment. Well, I'll get to that in a second. Just keep that in mind. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss or sustain damage, but he himself will be saved yet as though through fire. So our barn burnt to the ground, but my wife and I were safe. Maybe if you had a house fire. You know, you don't stop and go, well, I got to take all this stuff with me. When there's a house fire and the house is coming down or going up, so to speak, you just get out of there as fast as you can. Your clothes smell like smoke, but you're safe. The Corinthians were saved. We're not talking about unsaved people or people that are exposed to the judgment of salvation, the white throne judgment. This is the Bema seat judgment of God, the rewards place, where you get the reward for what you did with what God gave you in this life. This is not purgatory. This is the verse, the only verse that even comes close to supporting the Catholic understanding of purgatory. Now, you've read it in context. The doctrine of purgatory basically says that Jesus died for your eternal sins, but the consequences for your temporal sins, the ones you commit here, where you have to go through this limbo place between heaven and hell, where you actually have to suffer for the consequences of your own sin in that place. Now, you just read it for yourself. You tell me, is that what Paul is talking about? It's not the believer, it's not the worker that's being judged and on fire. It's his work. So again, I just submit this to you for consideration. 
Uh, that's the story, and I'm sticking to it. All right. Oh, by the way, let me just say one more thing. As you read your Bible, context is king. The local context, we see Paul's not talking about eternal judgment, salvation. He's talking about our works, the works of the believer. So that's the local context. And then you have to take the context of the rest of Scripture. We know that we're saved by grace. That Jesus Christ took all of our punishment on himself. So you have to interpret through the local context and the wider context, the whole Bible. You take a verse, say, how does this compare with the rest of Scripture? And that helps you to know what you're reading there. So verse 16 says to the church, now he says to all of us, not to you individually, but to us as a group. He says, do you not know that you all, y'all are the temple of God? If I can say that in Virginia's. Don't you know that y'all are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? So again, as I said, when we prayed, you know, sometimes we leave the big, fantastic church with all the bells and whistles and all the entertainment and all the gizmos and gadgets. Oh, I just, I felt so much like I was in the presence of the Lord. Oh, I really felt the presence of the Lord today. Who cares how you felt? The truth is, is that the spirit of God dwells in us, like it or not. And he's reminding them that you could look all over Corinth and you could see the temple of Apollo, the temple of Poseidon, the temple of Aphrodite, that was prominent. But wait a second, where's the temple of Yahweh? Where's the temple of God? Should we build something? Remember, for 300 years, the church didn't meet in buildings. We are a living temple. The temple of God, and this means the Holy of Holies, if you know your Old Testament, the place where the presence and the glory of God dwelt. And he says, that's us. That's God's presence and his glory dwell among in us. We are a living temple made out of living stones. That's why we rub each other the wrong way sometimes. Look at this warning, verse 17. If anyone defiles, literally spoils or ruins or corrupts and continues, it's in the present tense, if anyone continues to spoil or ruin the temple of God, this is why he reminds us that we're the temple of God. This is a holy institute, a holy place, a holy group. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy. It's the same word, defiles, corrupt, or ruin him. How were people defiling the temple of God? Worldly wisdom. That's the context. Through introducing this mixture of some of the word of God with lots of worldly wisdom, it was not bettering the temple. It was destroying it, corrupting it. I mean, if I have here a glass of milk, ah, love milk. How much arsenic would I have to put into it to ruin it? Just a drop of arsenic here. Go ahead, Doris, have that. Wait, no, no, I ain't touching that. Why? It's ruined. You ruined it. How did I ruin it? You put arsenic in it. Well, it's just a little bit. Come on. Don't be so judgmental. What's the big deal? Doesn't really matter that much, does it? You see, that's the attitude we have about the Word of God. Well, what if we bring in some other techniques? What if we introduce some worldly understandings? What's the big deal? It's a big deal if we tell people you need to have better self-esteem. When the Bible says you need to esteem others better than yourself. It's a big deal. He says, if you do that, then God will ruin or destroy or corrupt you. It's self-destructive. So by bringing into your life or the life of the church this worldly wisdom, then actually instead of bettering things and bettering you, 
if you are intrigued by what the world has to offer, it doesn't better you, it destroys you. He says, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. You know the word holy means different. The temple of God is different. We're different than the world. This is the problem that we face as the church when we try to be like the world and imitate the world to attract worldly people, then worldly people go, well, I can get this anywhere. I can get a concert anywhere. We've lost our edge. We have nothing to offer the world if we're not different. Are we together on this? Let no one deceive himself. That's a present imperative. That means stop deceiving yourself. Because they would have said about themselves, hey, we're really wise. Hey, we really know how to do this thing. We really know how to grow the church. We really got our ducks in a row. We really understand how people think. They would have said they're so wise and so understanding. They would have prided themselves on that. Let no one deceive or continue. Stop deceiving yourself, he would say. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool in order that he may become wise. you got to forget everything you learned in the world. At that time, when you have a decision to make about what to do, or someone asks you, what should I do? Forget everything you learned from Oprah and turn to the book of Obadiah. Forget everything you learned from Socrates and learn from Samuel, prophet in the Old Testament. Compare. Eat the meat, spit out the bones. If anyone among you seems to be wise and say, let him become a fool, a moros is the Greek word, let him become a moron. Worldly people should look at you and say, you're an idiot. You shouldn't give like that. You shouldn't serve like that. You can do better things with your Sunday morning. You should work more. You should do this. You should live for yourself. You should look out for number one. They should think you're an idiot because you have to become an idiot in terms of the world to actually become wise in terms of spiritual things. And now Paul proves it one more time here. He says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. That's Job 5.13. You know, I love to meet people. And I'll say, do you go to church? Or what's your deal? Do you believe in God? No, I'm an atheist. Whoa, you're an atheist, are you? Being an atheist is about the most foolish thing you can be. And usually what I say to that person, they say, well, I'm an atheist. I'm so certain that God does not exist. Well, let me ask this question. How much knowledge is there in the world? This body of knowledge in the world, how much is there? And of that whole body of knowledge in the world, how much do you know? We go, I don't know. Maybe God dwells where you don't know. So welcome to the world of agnosticism. Well, maybe God exists, I just don't know. At least it's a step closer. But it's foolish to say you're an atheist. Even the Bible says that. Psalm 14, verse 1, a fool says in his heart, there's no God. At least a wise person will say, maybe there is a God and I just don't know about him. We can work with that. He catches the wise in his own craftiness. Do you want to catch a coyote? Slick, sly animal like a coyote? You know how they kill coyotes in the north? They take a knife and they dip it in blood and they let it freeze. They dip it again in blood and they let it freeze. And they do that over and over until you have a knife sickle. And then they put it in the ground. And the coyote, with all of his desires for blood, comes and he starts to lick the knife. He tastes the blood and it starts to create a fervor in him, a hunger in him. And then pretty soon, he's licked all the way down to the knife edge. It's his tongue that he's lacerating, but he doesn't know it, killing himself slowly until he bleeds to death. 
Yeah, I know it's a graphic illustration, but it gets the point across in our desire for entertainment, in our desire for amusement, in a desire to feed our pleasure and to find a church that validates our pleasure, we slowly destroy and kill ourselves. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Verse 21, therefore, let no one boast in men. If you've ever stayed home when Pastor Steve is not teaching, Pastor, don't go there. You have missed the point of church. Let no one boast in men. That's just pride. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. It's all yours because you're Christ and Christ is God's. You own everything. Why would you get so limited and delineated to focusing on this one little group? As I said, be a Berean. You got Paul. You got Apollos. You got all these TV people. You've got the Methodist church. You've got the Baptist church. I love this. I can go and be part of an interdenominational pastor's meeting. But there are pastors that, well, I'm Baptist. I don't go to those other meetings. Yeah, I'm Calvary Chapel. Here I am at your Baptist meeting. Here I am at your Methodist meeting. Don't stick me in a box. I'm Christ. And I can eat the meat. I can enjoy what this group has to say. I can enjoy what that person has to say. I can enjoy that teaching. I can enjoy this teaching. No need to limit myself. The more spiritual you are, the less denominational you will become. You know that the point really for us personally is there are just way too many Christians who when it comes time to make that big decision or to deal with that thing, you turn to the world instead of turning to the Word. Can we be a church that turns to the Word for learning how to live, how to behave, how to think? Amen.